0: Well, good evening. Everybody good? Yo. Anybody ready to be home, kick up your feet, and take a nap or something? Yay. I'm right there with you. I tell people all the time that I get done with Wednesday before Wednesday gets done with me. So, so I'm with you. I'll try to keep you awake. And uh, we're in the second session of a five-session series on Jonah. The title of the series is called, let's see, do we have, there it is, the title of our series is called When God Says Yes and You Say No, Lessons from Jonah's Journal. And uh, we all have those moments, I'm pretty sure we do, we all have those moments when, when we know God's wanting us to do something and, and we just resist. We don't want to. When God was calling me to the ministry, he and I arm wrestled for months over that. And I was just giving him all the reasons why and when he Counter all the reasons. I just said no, I'm not doing it and just we all have those reasons We don't publicize them usually So that's the interesting thing about a journal is usually you'll put in a journal stuff You wouldn't show anybody else you get the behind-the-scenes stuff in a journal and the book of Jonah is written very much like a journal and so We've been taking a look at some journals, some behind-the-scenes things of journals. We looked at Einstein's journal last week. We looked at Mark Twain's journal last week. We looked at Edison's journal, Theodore Roosevelt's journal. That was a heartbreaking entry we read. Marilyn Monroe, that was even heartbreaking also. So tonight I wanted to bring you a different journal entry. And the journal entry is from John Wilkes Booth. Okay, who can tell me who John Wilkes Booth was? He assassinated Lincoln. He was the person who shot President Abraham Lincoln. So there's a couple entries I'll share with you. I don't have the photograph of the, the journal like we had last week. But I'll give these. He, here's an entry he, he wrote about describing how he shot President Lincoln. I struck boldly. And not as the papers say. I walked with a firm step towards through a thousand of his friends. Was stopped but pushed on. A colonel was at his side, and I shouted, six simper, which means thus always to tyrants, before I fired. In jumping, broke my leg. I passed passed all of his pickets, rode 60 miles that night with the bones in my legs tearing the flesh with every jump. Thus always to tyrants. And then there's another entry about whether he really regretted killing Lincoln or not, says this, I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. Our country owed all her troubles to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his his punishment, supposed to be of his punishment. The country is not what it was. This forced union is not what I have loved. I care not what becomes of me. I have no desire to live, to outlive my country, meaning the Confederate States of America. You know what's chilling about that last entry? I hear a lot of that same rhetoric on the news channels. I mean, I hear a lot of that same rhetoric. Uh, Our country owes all of her troubles to him. You know, we're always looking for somebody to blame me. I don't care what president you put in. Whatever's going wrong is going to be his fault. We hear that. That's nothing new to our time. Uh, The country's not what it was. This forced union is not what I have loved. That rhetoric just, when I read this journal entry, kind of spooked me because it felt like I was listening to CNN or Fox. So, that's a very interesting look into John Wilkes Booth that portion about uh, the bones in his leg tearing his flesh as he rode so it's a very frightening thing that those entries sound very much like the mindsets we hear now well in the book of the in the book of jonath i said what i told you it reads a lot like a journal it's a third person journal but a lot of scripture is written in third person moses wrote the pentateuch in third person And so it reads like a journal, and in a sense, that's really what it is. It's a personal journal written in the third person. So last week, we started examining Jonah's journal. We just took sections of that passage, and we didn't get past chapter 1, verse 3. That's as far as we got, okay? So we are going to have to speed up somewhere, but it probably won't be this evening either. And the way we've been examining it is this. We look at a Fictitious journal entry. We'll look at what a journal entry from Jonah might have sounded like. And then we compare it to the text. And then we take that text apart and look at it. And then we get some takeaways for us in this day and age. So last week we covered Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And we discussed things like this. We talked about Jonah. And <clears throat> some people take issue with the historicity of Jonah. They pick stuff out of the book and say, well, that can't be a historical account. It's got to be fable. It's got to be. And yet Jesus spoke of Jonah as if he was a real live historical figure. And so if I've got to make a decision on the book of Jonah, I'm going to go with Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to handle the book of Jonah just as is at face value. We said the name Jonah means dove, which sounds really pleasant and pleasing, but it's really not because the word dove really meant referred to someone with, who was naive and without sense. And that's how Jonah is described by his name. Uh, the book of Jonah is different because in most prophetic books, it's about the prophecy, not the prophet. But in the book of Jonah, it's about the prophet. Not the prophecy. In a lot of the other prophetic books, the prophecies are really long and involved. And in Jonah, his prophecy is like just a handful of words. Is all it is. So Jonah is a different book. It turns everything upside down on its head. We'll look about. We'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, It's a very short book where a lot of the other prophecy books are much longer. Uh, He was the only prophet to run from God. Which is very interesting. Jonah was sent to warn Israel's enemies of God's approaching judgment. And usually a prophet talked to Israel about God's approaching judgment. Not his enemies. Usually the enemies were the judgment. So that's all flipped. And and the book of Jonah seems to just turn everything upside down. From what you would normally think. But the book of Jonah is very picturesque of how God feels about people. And his desire to reach people. It's very evangelistic in its nature. And then we talked about Nineveh. We said Nineveh is about a month's journey from the capital of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. And uh, it's the second largest city, second only to Babylon. So it's a big place. The walls were there was an outer wall and an inner wall. They were huge. It was fortified, it was a metropolis of its day. And it was wicked. It was extremely wicked. You'll hear more about that this evening. To house the most brutal enemies of God's people ever. And uh, so, listen to this prophet. Listen to this testimony. How many of you are familiar with John Vernon McGee? You know, some of you listen to him on the radio. He's passed, long since passed now. John Vernon McGee wrote a commentary on Jonah. And listen to this. Description of the Ninevites. This is the people that Jonah was supposed to come and prophesy to. Listen to this. Jonah hated the Ninevites. And he did not want them to be saved. And there was a basis for his hatred. Assyria was one of the most brutal nations of the ancient world. They were feared and dreaded by all the peoples of that day. They used very cruel methods of torture. They could... and. and could extract information from their captives very easily. One of the procedures was to take a man out into the sand of the desert and bury him up to his neck. Nothing but his head would stick out. And then they would put a thong through his tongue and leave him there to die as the hot penetrating sun would beat down on his head. It was said that a man would go mad before he died. And when they moved down like a plague of locust upon a town or a village, it was said that they, the village or the town was so feared and dreaded that on some occasions the entire town would commit suicide rather than fall into their hands. That's how brutal, how awful Nineveh was. And this is the place that God told little old Jonah to march into the middle of by himself, no army, no anything, and tell them that, judgment was coming. So you can see why Jonah was hesitant, right? Not just hesitant. He just said, uh uh-uh, not me. I'm not doing that. Uh, but here's the thing. Nineveh was primed for the message. They really were. They had gone through a couple of plagues, which they believed their gods were bringing judgment on them. And then they'd gone through a total eclipse of the sun, which really spooked them out. So they were they were ready to hear the message. Jonah just wasn't ready to deliver it. And so Jonah disregards God, and he decides he's going to go 180 degree opposite direction. And when he decides that, the scripture kind of describes it as him going down. He goes down to Joppa. Again, the opposite direction. He goes down to a ship in the harbor. And then when he's on the ship, he goes down to the bottom of the ship. And tonight, we're going to see he goes down to The bottom of a fish, which goes down to the bottom of the sea. It's just a downward trajectory. And so we finished up by giving you some takeaways. Some of the takeaways was God longs to reach everyone, even when we don't. He still wants to reach everyone. And God, when he calls, it's a command, not a consideration. It's not for your consideration. It's for your doing. It's a command. God disturbs to disperse if god wants to move you and especially if you're entrenched he's going to disturb something he's going to disrupt something he's going to upend something to get you move we saw that with the early church rather than going out and spreading the gospel they were kind of huddled up in jerusalem so there was persecution that came to jerusalem You saw that in the Tower of Babel when the people were supposed to fill the earth and instead they were all huddled up in Babel and then God confuses their language so they have to scatter. God will disturb to distribute and to disperse. Three more takeaways. There are many ways to run from God's presence and none of them work. I'm just telling you, none of them work. There's a great passage in Psalms that talks about there's nowhere you can go that he's not there. When you ignore God, you end up, like Jonah, just going down, going down, going down, going down, going down. And finally, the last takeaway we talked about was just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not God's will. And just because it's easy doesn't mean it is his will. That's a tough one for us. I know it was. We've talked about that in the previous series. So, let's get into tonight's study, tonight's portion of Jonah's journal. Last week, we read verses 1 through 3. I'll go through those really quick just to give you the context, okay? It goes like this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up before me. Meaning it's just bubbled up to the very top. Can't hold anymore. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is completely opposite. From the presence of the Lord, from the face of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away, here it is again, from the presence of the Lord. God, Jonah doesn't even, it's not that Jonah doesn't want to do what he was told. He doesn't want to even be around God. He's that mad he's that upset. All right, so let's get in tonight. Here's what Jonah's journal might look like, his journal entry might look like. Things were going well and I started to forget all about things until today. We're experiencing a very bad storm and the crew looks scared. They're scrambling to secure the ship. I'm sure they know what they're doing, but to hear them pray is unnerving. So maybe I can just sleep through it. That's the fictitious entry of what Jonah might have written. Here's what the text tells us. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. But the Lord hurled, log that word in your brain, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, hear the contrast? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Fast asleep. All right, let's tear apart this text just a little bit. We're just going to take some phrases out of it to give you a feel and a flavor of this, this text. First of all, the Lord. It says very clearly this was not just happenstance. The Lord did this. And it uses some very aggressive words. It doesn't say, God brought a storm. It says, the Lord hurled a storm upon them. Uh, so, this was not coincidence. It was calculated. God is involved in his creation and can do with it whatever he pleases. And he hurled a storm at this ship. Look at this word here. Threatened. Threatened. The word here is kashab. Kashab. And it means to fabricate or to plot or contrive so it's very very specific word this is another sign that God is intentionally quote-unquote rocking their boat he's doing it on purpose there's a reason for this and remember Jonah's writing this after the fact he's not writing this as it happens he's writing this after it's all over with and so when he looks back on what happened he knows this was God that's why he writes it that way Now, here's a question for you. Is every storm you face from God, from God, or excuse me, is every storm you face from God and for a reason? I'm going to wait you out, so if you want to go home, somebody's got to answer. No, not every storm, I guess I should have put this instead of two parts. Is every storm from God and for a reason? You're saying no. Not every storm is from God. Okay. Yes. I don't think every storm is from God, but God allows certain storms because He's in control of everything. Some of it might be from our own doing or from someone else that wants to harm us, like Satan, and He allows it. Okay. So you're saying not every storm comes from God, but He still will use it. Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to weigh in? I kind of agree with both of you. Say it again. Good point. She's saying the 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 storm, the struggle, the trial that came to Job. Was not from God. Scripture tells us very clearly that came from the enemy. But God allowed it. So sometimes it feels like a matter of semantics. Not every storm is from God. Sometimes it's of our own doing, we have caused it. Sometimes it's somebody else has done something, either directly or indirectly, that's affected us. Sometimes it's just because we live in a sinful world, the world's broken. And, and it just doesn't run white. Sometimes the best people on the planet get cancer because we live in a broken world. So not every storm, some are, some storms are like this one for Jonah was directly from the Lord. But not everyone is. And yet, whether it is or isn't, isn't the point. The point is, what does God want to do with it? Because if he didn't want it to be there, he'd have stopped it. So if he's allowed this storm into your life, either by your means or somebody else's means or the the fallen world's means or his means, he's planning to do something with it. So he may not cause it, but he can use it. So look at another phrase in here. The phrase afraid or the word afraid. These were experienced seamen. These were rough rugged sailors. They had traveled this route multiple times. This is not the first storm they had encountered on that route, and yet they knew something's different here. They were afraid there was something different about this storm, and uh, and that must have unnerved Jonah. You know, because you're putting your hands in the sailors hands just like when you get in a plane you're putting your hands in the pilots play you're putting yourself in the pilots hands when they get unnerved is bothersome right you know that's why when the pilot comes on he's always talking in such a calm voice right the plane is going down in flames and we're going to crash but we'll be there at such and such time it's always really calm because when they get unnerved, it unnerves everybody. These sailors were afraid. And so what does it say? It says they prayed, cried out, each to his God. Each to his God. Remember, this is multi-theism in here. This is polytheism. Everybody had their own God. There is a God of a million different things, and you kind of latched onto the one that was your favorite. And it was believed that those gods were regional. They didn't get outside their region. So everybody had their own god. And so everybody, everybody's crying out to their own god. You know what they're doing? They're hedging their bets. They're, you know, we don't know which god is causing this. But let's pray to all of them and see if we can get this taken care of. They're they are scrambling. You know what this is like. Because when you get in trouble, what's your first instinct? To cry out to God. We'll talk some more about that in in a little bit. But they are crying out to their God. And it's a reference to the multiplicity of the pagan gods. Each would have their favorite. And we'll see later the theme of the book of Jonah is that there is one God over everything. There's one God over the Israelites, over the Ninevites, over the storm, over the fish, over all of creation, over Jonah. That is an overarching theme in the book of Jonah. And, uh, That brings a sense of security when you get a grasp on that. Let's look at another phrase. They hurled the cargo. They hurled the cargo. Notice the word hurled is used three times in these, what, two verses? Three times. God hurls the wind at them. They hurl the cargo. And then a little bit later, they're going to hurl Jonah over. And they keep using that same word, that calculated word. Why would they hurl the cargo over? Lighten the load. load. But why would they want to lighten the load? Because it seems to me me like that would make you even more apt to... Raises it up out of the water. water. Why is that important? Pardon? So So you don't take on water. And there's one more reason. If this storm is driving you towards the shore... The lower you are in the water, the quicker you're going to hit the rocks. And the quicker it destroys the ship. So they throw the cargo over to lighten the load, to raise it up. So if they're going to hit the rocks, they'll be closer to shore. Um, Then this phrase, but Jonah. There's a distinct difference that happens here. This is a word of contrast. What's the difference between the pagan sailors and Jonah? Think of the differences that are happening here. They're going somewhere and he's running? Okay. Yeah, they're working, he's sleeping. One knows about God and the others don't? Right. Right. One knows about the God of all creation. The other one knows about a bunch of pagan gods. What are the other differences? They're afraid and he's not. They're afraid and he's not. Or he's just checking out. Maybe. But yeah, they're definitely more anxious than he is. Any other differences? I'm sorry, say it again. Sounds like they care and he doesn't. Yeah. And and there's a there's a lot of truth to that. Jonah just doesn't care. You can see this in his demeanor all the way through until about halfway through the book, and then all of a sudden it changes. But up until that point, his demeanor is, oh well. Yeah, there's a lot of differences. That's why it says, but Jonah. The sailors were praying like. Everything depended upon God, and they were working like everything depended upon them. Jonah was doing just the opposite. Just really strange to me. The sailors worried about their safety and the safety of others. They even worried about the safety of Jonah. But Jonah didn't seem to care about either of those. Jonah's just kind of in a tough spot here. He's in a bad way. The pagans wanted to live. Jonah seemed to be okay with dying. We'll talk more about why. Notice how the book turns everything up on its head. It just spins everything counterclockwise. The pagans are praying, but the prophet of God isn't. The pagans are worried about the welfare of others, but the prophet of God isn't. The storm is sent to get the prophet's attention, not the sailors, not the pagans. And the pagans could see what was going on, but the prophet of God couldn't, or he wouldn't. This is what the book of Jonah does. It's playing with all of these odd, what's the juxtaposition is the word I'm looking for. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds right. (laughs) Juxtaposition. That's what the book of Jonah does, is it plays with all of those. Okay, so that's a short section. Let's do some takeaways, and then we'll take another section. Some takeaways from what we've just read in these verses. God will do whatever he has to to get our attention. Which to me is just frightening. You know. He doesn't do it to scare us or to punish us. He's doing it to capture us and turn us around. But he will do whatever he has to do to get our attention. Uh, There have been two major moves in my life and there's probably been more but in each of these major moves God had to break a bone in my life literally break a bone to get me to move I was uh working in the oil fields of Oklahoma had just gotten married I'd only been married a few months something like that and I'm still playing music in the bars and And uh, somebody, this preacher comes and shares the gospel with me on a Saturday afternoon. I know he had better things to do on a Saturday afternoon, but he came and shared the gospel with me. I didn't want him to. I was not happy he was there, but he did it. And uh, lo and behold, a few weeks later, after I had wrestled and wrestled and gotten surly and mad and angry and upset, I gave my life to Christ. But it was a little small church, and we were young people, and, and we probably weren't going to grow there. So, it wasn't very long after that that I was in an accident in the oil field and shattered this wrist. Uh, If you see, it's kind of crooked, you know. Uh, Shattered it in about 25 countable pieces between here and here, and the rest they couldn't count. And so, that meant I couldn't do my job. And uh, they had a job opening in West Texas that fit my education, which, by the way, was an education I didn't want to get. I was just didn't want to go to work, so flipped open a college catalog and said, "I'll take that. I'll take that." And just lined up. And so we go to West Texas. We're growing a family. We're growing in the Lord. We're and God starts talking to me about going to seminary, about going into ministry, and I'm dragging my feet again and and. Uh, and I'm having to finish my bachelor's degree because you've got to have a bachelor's to go to seminary, and I didn't even have that. And and so I get everything done where we can go to seminary, and I'm just not going. I'm just kind of happy where I'm at. We're doing great work. And family's growing. We have friends, and I like it there. And uh, I think I told you this story. My students asked me as a student pastor if I would go play basketball with them. And... Uh, my wife said remember you are not a young man and she was right because 20 minutes later my students were carrying me back into the house I'd fractured my ankle and uh, couldn't work for several months and in that time God says are you ready to go now and I was so God will do whatever He has to do. Hopefully, He doesn't have to break your bones. Like, I'm I'm a little stubborn, evidently. He has to break bones with me. Hopefully, He doesn't have to do that with you, but He will do whatever He has to do to get your attention. Another takeaway God deliberately uses, pursues us, excuse me, deliberately pursues us even when we move away from Him. He deliberately chases us. He's persistent that way. Remember the parable of the lost sheep? Where there's a shepherd that has a hundred sheep and one of those sheep wanders off and gets lost. And the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and pursues the lost sheep. God is persistent that way. He will pursue you even if you're moving away. Which is great news for us. Because when we're moving away, we're not thinking about him. And we just get deeper and deeper in stuff if he didn't pursue us and find us. Another takeaway. Our sin and rebellion affects others. Our sin and rebellion affects others. One of the stupidest things I've ever said in my life was at, lo and behold, was when I was a teenager. Go figure. And uh, I remember telling my father about, we were having an argument about something, and uh, I remember telling him, you know what? As long as it doesn't affect anybody else, I should be able to do what I want. Uh. Because everything we do affects somebody else. We do not live in a vacuum. Our sin affects somebody else. You may think it's just yours and it's not bleeding over on, but it does. It just does. When we sin, it affects everyone. The sailors were facing this storm, the loss of cargo, the loss of their ship, possible death because of Jonah's sin. And so, when you sin or do anything, it affects somebody else. And then, one last takeaway. When your heart is hard, you can tune out almost anything. Notice I didn't say anything, but almost anything. When your heart gets hard, you just quit listening. Stuff just bounces off of you. And, thank goodness, the only thing that can penetrate really is God and we can still shut him out pretty well but he'll just keep ramping up the heat to get our attention. So another coo- another couple of verses, questions, comments before we go on to something else. Making sense? Oh that was, that was just a really raucous affirmation there. I'm going to have to try harder in this next section so let's go another section. Okay, here's another fictitious journal entry. It's been several days since my last entry. And to be honest, I didn't know if I was even going to make another entry or not. I am currently on a beach trying to stay warm and wrap my head around everything. In my last entry, I was trying to sleep through a storm. And, well, that didn't work. The captain woke me up angry and hysterical, and he told me to get up and make my peace with God because it looked like we were going to drown. I hadn't told him that I was running from God, but somehow these superstitious pagan uh, sailors just seemed to know and started pressing me with questions. So I told them the whole story. Okay, that's kind of the fictitious entry that he might make. Here's the text it comes from. Hey, we're making progress. There's like four verses here. Yay. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? He finds him in the bottom of the ship sleeping. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will, notice it's an interesting phrase, perhaps the God. Perhaps the God will give us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, "Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us." So they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, "Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What's your country? And what are your people what people of, of what people are you?" And so and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this you have done? And the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That's that phrase again. But he, because he had told them. Okay. Things are heating up in the story. It's a great story. This is the way stories work. They start here and then they ramp up, and this is ramping up. So let's take apart this portion of the text. Look at the irony in the story. Pagans come to a prophet. Pagans have to wake him up. Pagans call the prophet to pray. That's all backwards. Tells you how far Jonah, how far gone Jonah was. So some of the phrases you're gonna find: your God. Pray to your God. This is not a reference to the Almighty God. It's simply him urging him to pray to whatever gods the Hebrews had. You know, so if you're a Hebrew and you have a God, pray to your God. Remember, they're polytheistic. But they're going to find out here very shortly whose God he's praying to. And then it says they cast lots. They cast lots. Now, after waking Jonah up, after telling him to pray, then the sailors decide they're going to cast lots and try to determine whose fault it was. And casting lots was casting objects. We don't necessarily know what kind or what shape they'd be, but they would cast them like dice to try to determine the fault of a person or the blame of a person. It was, it was not just a pagan practice. It really wasn't. As weird as it may sound, the practice was used by God's people too. If, if you're taking notes and want to know, because I don't have these on the screen, Uh, It was used in determining which goat would be sacrificed and which goat would be sent out as the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Those goats were determined by casting lots. Uh, You can find that in Leviticus 16.8. It was used, casting lots was used in dividing up and sectioning off the promised land. Promised land, you can find that in Numbers 26, 55 through 56. It was used in choosing King Saul, the very first king of Israel. They used casting lots. It was used uh, to decide the families that would return to Jerusalem from the exile. When families came back from the exile, they would cast lots to decide which families would come. So it was used there. And it was used in the New Testament. Do you know where that was? Yeah, replacing Jesus' disciple. When, when Judas hung himself, they decided they needed to fill in the number 12 slot, and they did that by casting lots. So it wasn't just a pagan practice. Now, let's be honest. Drawing dice to decide God's will seems a little iffy, right? I wouldn't recommend it, necessarily. Uh, Sounds a little more like going to Vegas than figuring out God's will. But God can and will work through anything. Listen to these words from Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. All right, let's get back to taking apart this text. I want to make sure we get through everything this evening. Another phrase in there you find When Jonah said, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. The first time this term was used was in Genesis. Back in Genesis, it was chapter, uh, let's see, let me find out. Chapter 14. Genesis 14, 13. And it's when Abraham went to rescue Lot. Lot had been kidnapped and his family had been kidnapped and Abraham sets out to rescue them. That's the first time you see the use of the word Hebrew. And it was a term that was always used to distinguish them as foreigners, as vagabonds. So it wasn't always used in their day and age as a a pleasant term. It was kind of derogatory a lot of times. But Jonah identifies as a Hebrew. And then he says this, I fear the Lord. Notice Jonah's words didn't match his actions. They didn't match up, but he said, I fear the Lord. His words are more about identifying with his God. Not necessarily portraying his faith. Which is really important for you and I to get that. Because you and I often identify as Christians. But we don't always act like it. So we're not that far from Jonah sometimes. When Jonah says, I fear the Lord. He was saying, this is the God I relate to. This is the God I call as my God. But didn't say that he was putting his faith in him all the time. And remember again, at that time. There were a multiplicity of pagan gods. And so... Jonah's kind of staking out his claim, saying, this is my God. But he adds to it. He says, I fear the Lord. And then he defines him, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He said, basically, I worship this God who owns everything. You have all of these segmented, compartmentalized gods, and I have one over everything, which frightened the sailors even more so now in verse 10 the sailors know that the storm is because of jonah and that jonah's god is doing this because he is fleeing from the presence or the face of the lord so now it's getting even hotter tension is ramping up even more so let's do some takeaways and we'll grab another section first takeaway to look at in moments of crisis it is instinctive turn to God it is instinctive to turn to God you can take the biggest atheist on the planet and when it looks like they're going to die when it looks like their car is going to roll off the edge of the cliff almost invariably we cry out oh God it's instinctive look at what it says in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And here's what I want you to hear. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in the heart of every man. And that's why when calamity happens, when it looks like we're going to lose a life or a loved one, we cry out, oh God. It's instinctual in moments of crisis. Another takeaway. Believers can become so complacent or disobedient that the lost will wind up doing what the believers do not. That's a tough phrase. I had to think about that for a little bit when I wrote it down because I thought, well, that doesn't look right. But it's true. Believers can become so complacent or disobedient that the lost will wind up doing what believers do not. Example, caring for the poor. When the church doesn't, government has to. Another one, sex ed in the schools. When the church drops our privilege to inform our kids, our students, about the godly view of sex and what it means and how we're supposed to live in it and enjoy it, when we stop doing that, somebody picks it up. Who picks it up? School system. Can you think of some other examples? Pardon? Say it really loud. Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, I suppose. The foster, care system. the foster care system? How so? Believers are called to take care of orphans. Okay. Could be. Yes. Say it really loudly. Litigation. Yes. Yes. Oftentimes litigation. I saw another hand. Yes. Marriage between a man and a woman. woman. Education. Education. See, there's a lot of ways that if we drop the ball, somebody else is going to pick it back up. Uh, Luke 1940. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus is moving into Jerusalem, and his disciples are trying to tell him to calm the crowds because they're screaming, Hosanna and Messiah. And the disciples are saying, you know, you're going to start a riot. You're going to get us arrested. Calm them. And Jesus said, if they are silent, the stones will cry out. If we do not do what we're called to do, somebody else will step up. And, and sometimes if it's not a godly individual who steps up, then everything goes south. So, another takeaway. It's easy to say one thing about God and then live differently. But we will be found out. Jonah said, I fear the Lord God. But he didn't fear him enough to do what he was told to do. And, and the passage on that is Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? We're all guilty of that. That stings every one of us. Or this passage, Luke 12, 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetop. It's easy to say one thing about God and do something differently, but you will be found out. One last takeaway, and then we'll try to do one last passage. God is completely sovereign over weather, over lots, over elements of creation, over those who know him, over those who don't, over fish, over waves, on and on it goes. He is completely sovereign, which goes back to using the word consequence is a bit of a stretch. All right? Questions, comments before we do this last section? Yes? In the moment, I didn't know. Sometimes you find out these things in hi- hindsight. But I did know this. I came about this far from losing my life because a, a bundle of steel rods came down across my chest, I got my wrist snapped in them, and if the incline had been just another degree or two more, it would have crushed my chest. And so I knew knew I'd come close, but I didn't know why at the time. But it got my attention. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. and it is frustrating because it's it'd be great if he could just sit down here and say let me tell you exactly how i want this to be and that's not typically how it works but here's what i have found when god wants you to know something he will continue to add up the cards you know you'll get it from this point you'll get it maybe from this section over here somebody will say something you'll go oh that feels like and 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 the the evidence just keeps mounting up if you listen if you're aware if you're paying attention if you're staying in the moment when when god was calling me to surrender to ministry i just knew i mean it was like a thumb on me i just knew and, uh, and things just started adding up. So there's no... And again, we as Christians, we like formulas. We want a formula because if we can figure the formula, then we can work life and, and in a sense, kind of control God. God's not going to give you a formula. It's a relationship. So the closer you get to him, the more you'll discern what he wants. Be still and know that I'm God. Seek his face more than you seek answers, and you'll find the answers, too. It's probably not exactly decisive like you would have liked but that's the best I got for you all right we got let's get this last section let's do the journal entry sorry I had to stop and find some food and some more wood for the fire anyway getting back to the story with everything that was happening I felt that he was angry and was using this storm to get back at me for not doing what I was told It just felt like it would be better for me and everyone else if I wasn't there. So I told them just to throw me, misspelled throw, throw me overboard. I guess I didn't have the nerve to do it myself. I thought that the sailors would have jumped at the offer. But they tried everything they could instead of throwing me over. I guess they were scared of making him more angry. But eventually there was nothing left to do. We were all scared, and even while they were, they lived, lifted me. Boy, I got a lot of typos in this. Even while they lifted me over the side, they were asking him not to hold it against them. Now, I expected to hit the water and have the raging waves pull me down to the bottom, but. By the time I came up for air, the sea was calm. I looked up at the sailors at the rail, and their mouths were open, and they were started praising, and their hands were up in the air, and they, and they were crying out, and then slowly, they drifted out of sight. Let's look at the text where I pull this from, this fictitious entry. Jonah 1, 11 through 16. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There's the word hurl again. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it's pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him, again, there's the word, hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All right, let's take apart this text and then we'll go home. First phrase. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. And you see that twice. It's That same phrase is mentioned twice. Storm was getting worse and worse and because you see this for twice anytime scripture repeatedly mentions something it's trying to get your attention it's, it's trying to drive something home and in this short amount of verbiage it's mentioned twice. So things were getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then he said pick me up and throw me into the sea. Notice he didn't do it himself you know It seems kind of uh, mealy to not do it yourself. If you know you're the reason, he says, you guys pick me up and throw me over. He couldn't do it himself. But this is not the only place you see this. Others of God's prophets and leaders have wanted to die, but they didn't want to do it themselves. Moses. Moses, if you look at Numbers 11, 14 through 15, Moses is basically saying, God I didn't give birth to these people. These whining, complaining, difficult, stiff-necked people. I didn't give birth to them. If you're going to saddle me with them, just kill me now. It's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. Or, Elijah. Elijah has this great victory on Mount Carmel. He calls fire down from the sky. kills 400 prophets of Baal. You would think he would be excited, but the queen says, you know what? By this time, tomorrow, I'm going to have your head. And so he runs, he's depleted, he's tired, he runs, he winds up in a cave and he basically tells God, I'm the only person on the planet standing up for you and so just kill me now. Again, wouldn't do it himself, ask God to do it. So Jonah's request is is not too far off. And then he says, hurl me, the same word. It's an intentional move, be intentional about it. He says, I know, Jonah knew exactly what was happening and how God was trying to get his attention, but he still would not repent. He would rather drown than march into Nineveh and see those people saved, basically. Now, look at the irony. The pagan soldiers are trying harder than Jonah is. They don't want to throw him overboard. They don't want to be guilty of this death. They're more worried about hurting them than Jonah was. And they're more submitted to not offending God than Jonah was. In other words, the pagans wound up worshiping God, sacrificing to God, making vows to God. But the prophet of God didn't. That's just whacked. That's just messed up. And it's real easy to read the book of Jonah and think, well, I would never get like that. We do this all the time. It's just smaller, less dramatic But we do this all the time. One more word in the text, and then we'll do some takeaways and go home. Ceased. It says that the sea, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The word ceased means to stand respectfully before something or someone, to be motionless. When they threw Jonah in, the sea didn't just calm down a little bit. It went like glass. That'll get your attention. Seas don't just go to glass immediately. They slowly calmed down. This sea went to glass. In other words, the sea became still and motionless the minute he went into the water. All right? So it seems like the story is settling down, but it's not yet. We'll get to that next week. Let's do some takeaways. Understanding means nothing without submission understanding means nothing about without submission. Un- Jonah understood exactly what was happening, but he still wouldn't submit. First Samuel 15:22. When they were when when Samuel comes to Saul. Saul's been told, "Look, I don't want you to do anything until I get here. Don't do anything." But Saul goes ahead and sacrifices to God because he's scared of the enemy. He knows the enemy is going to get him. And he can't wait on Samuel to come back, so he sacrifices and disobeys Samuel. And listen to what Samuel said. Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Understanding means nothing without submission. How many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie? Any of you? Okay. Out of that season came an an artist, a piano player, a singer, by the name of Keith Green. I challenge you to go listen to his song, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. Come straight from this text. It's piercing. Anyway, we don't have time for that. Now let's move on. At times, it seems easier to settle for less than to repent and obey God, but it is not easier. It seems easier, but it will not be easier. Some of us believe that doing what God wants us to do could be just too hard and it's easier just to ignore it but you'll walk around with guilt you'll walk around with conviction you won't be able to get away from it and you're left out of all sorts of power and you're left adrift so it's not easier if we refuse to worship God and give him the praise and honor he deserves he will raise up others to do so he will raise up others to do so just as he did with the sailors just as Jesus said if you don't If you silence these people, the rocks will cry out. Other people will. You ever come to church in really kind of a bad state of mind, a bad spiritual place, and everybody around you looks like, man, they're praising God, and part of you is envious, and part of you is just mad about it? That's what we're talking about here. All right, one more takeaway. The more you rebel against God, the further down you go. And the further down you go, the more God turns up the heat. And again, he is not doing this to punish. Why do you go further down when you rebel against God? Well, because you're on the wrong path. You can't keep, write this down, you can't get to the right place by going the wrong way. You cannot get to the right place by going the wrong way. And that's why you go down. But why does he keep turning up the heat? Because he desperately wants to reach you. Not punish you, but reach you. Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones, not he hates, the ones he loves, and chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. So, the more you rebel, the more you go down, the more you go down, the more he turns up the heat. All right. That's all we're going to do tonight. Questions, comments, conjectures, arguments, whatever. Yes. Oh, Hold on just a minute. Let me get him. Yes. Okay. Isn't casting lots the same concepts as a wheezy board? Boy, you are pulling out the deep weeds right here at the end. <laughs> In a sense, Yes. And as I said, I don't believe casting lots is a really great way to do things, okay? But God tends to take us where we're at and then grow us out of that somewhere else. And I think this is where the soldiers were at. This is where the sailors were at. That's that's all they knew to do. And, uh, And it's interesting when you start talking about the disciples using that to pick the 12th disciple. So, yeah, I don't have a good answer, but yeah, they feel a little bit the same, don't they? Hold on just a minute. Back in the back. I believe that because he was told to go to Nineveh, which is a Syrian country, and because of what we heard about how awful the Assyrians were, and how they tortured their victims, and how whole communities would commit suicide before they let themselves fall in the hands, I believe because he was told to go there, I think Jonah felt like, one, it was probably a suicide mission, two, he felt like, If he didn't go and God brought judgment on them, that's kind of a patriotic move for for Jonah. And so I think his, like most of us, his motives were mixed. I'm sure there was some fear in there. Uh, And I'm sure there was some hatred for the Assyrians. And he didn't want God to rescue them. He didn't want God to spare them. He wanted them torched. So, and we all have that. We all... You know, you're watching TV and somebody gets what you think they deserve, and you go, Good, we got it. We have that. Guilty. Yeah, we're all guilty. <laughs> One last question. But but people who don't know God don't believe that they're seeking Satan's answers. They're just seeking answers. There's a bunch of people in our world that are just seeking answers. And they seek them in some ways we think, well, that's stupid. That's crazy. That's against God. We, We have all kinds of labels to put on, but they're just seeking answers. And the reason they're seeking answers is we're not out there giving them. We're not out there living those answers. We're not being salt so that they get thirsty enough to come to us and say, how can you do that? And so they seek answers where they can find them. And Jonah is running when God's saying, hey, go, give, go bring him the answer. Go show him the answer. And it's too risky. So Jonah's stepping on our toes. It's not just a fish story. We'll get to the fish story, but it's not just a fish story. He's really stepping on toes here. So, now I, I, I answer one in a minute, but we got to go because childcare is going to have my hide if you don't come pick up your children, and you don't want those people mad at you. You know, you you want to keep them happy. So let's pray and we'll go. Father, I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for this book, uh, and I'm grateful for all the nuances that are there. And uh, but as we've talked about, if we just walk out of here because we have. And feeling good because we have all kinds of new information that we didn't have before. But it doesn't change the way we walk or talk or live. It's been useless, Father. The book of Jonah, like all of the Old Testament, is there as example to us to learn from. So whatever it is we need to learn from the sections we've looked at this evening. And whatever it is we need to take into our next week and tweak and change ourselves with. then would you please highlight that? And would you please do it? And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you next week. Maybe we'll get him inside the fish next week. Surely we will.